It's great to see you this morning. Thank you, Sally, for how you've led us through the service and got us to think about a number of different issues. It's been really helpful. Uh, Sally has already asked us a couple of questions. Uh, I have got another one for you, and it's, it's this. How can I help you? How can I help you? I, I want you to just think about that for a moment, and I'll explain why I've asked it in a minute. It's a good question, but it's also a dangerous question. So if you have a Bible, please turn to uh, 2 Kings chapter 4. Last week in chapter 3, we found Elisha having to deal with an environmental and a humanitarian crisis, plus having to handle tension and conflict between a number of political leaders, kings, and nations. So it was kind of big stuff he was dealing with last week, high-profile stuff, very public stuff. And in each situation that Elisha found himself in, in every circumstance, he turned to and he shared God's word because that's what he was known for. That's just what he did. And one of the, uh, one of the main messages from last week was a kind of encouragement to all of us to be that kind of person, to be the kind of people who seek God's word and share God's word, who read God's word and reflect God's word. And the question I ended with last Sunday was this. How will your practice this week, how will your practice this week reflect your attitude towards God's word? Now, that's that's the question I asked last week. So if you were here, what's the answer? What's the answer? What did your reading of the Bible, your time and your engagement with it during this past week say about the place of Scripture in your daily life? What did it reveal? Just as a, a kind of follow-up to that, let me, let me show you a great little book uh, that I want to make available next Sunday. Mark, Mark brought this book to my attention, and he's actually sending out a copy of it as part of a youth pack that's going out very, very soon. But it's a little book called Before You Open Your Bible, and the subheading of it, I don't know if you can read it in the screen there, is Nine Heart Postures for Approaching God's Word. So this is not a book on how to read the Bible. This is a book attempting to rejuvenate your approach to Scripture. And it's short. It's really, really short. It's a brilliant book. It's only a pound <laughs> And there's going to be a supply of them next week, which I'd really encourage you to grab a copy of. Because you see, how we approach God's word, how we approach God's word this morning, right now, and how we have approached God's word all week will have determined and now will determine how you hear it and how you respond to it. So if you're here next week, do grab a copy of that. But let's, let's go to 2 Kings 4. For anybody who's new or visiting, we've been kind of reading our way through Kings since February under the, the title Game of Thrones. And we've finished 1 Kings. Now, we haven't exhausted 1 Kings, but we've finished it for now. And we're into book two, 2 Kings. And the main character at this point in the story is Elisha. Well, that's not quite true because the main character is always God, but you kind of know what I mean. So Elisha is Elijah's successor, and he's got a reputation. Now, if you were here last week, here we go, this is where I 
either feel good or feel rubbish about myself. So if you were here last week, can anybody remember one of the two things about Elisha's reputation? Humble, and he read God's word, right? I feel good about myself, great. But last week in chapter three, as, as this reputation went before him, he, as I say at the start, he got himself embroiled in kind of major national events. But you see, as we get into chapter four, and have, have scan this, we are gonna read it in a minute, but as we get into chapter four, the setting changes, and the, the people are very different. So it's not named kings and their armies we encounter, it's unnamed women and their families that we're gonna read about. And what I really quickly wanna say, I wanna make this point That as you move from chapter three into chapter four, what it confirms is that God is not just, or he's not only interested and involved in major matters in national and international affairs, he's also interested and involved in the lives of ordinary people like you and me. Do you know, what goes on in your world and behind your closed doors matters to God. Yeah, God cares about the national and international affairs, but God cares about you and your world and your life and what is going on behind the closed doors of your homes at this present moment in time. So let's stand together for the public reading of God's all-encompassing word. Now, as you stand, there are, there are four, in- do, do stand with me. There are four incidents in this chapter we're only going to cover one of them and then touch on the second and leave the other two plus the second half of the second one, that's complicated, next week. Okay, so here's the first seven verses of 2 Kings 4 and the words are on the screen. The wife of a man from the company of prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except small jar of olive oil. So Elisha said, Go round and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. And then I want you to go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars. And as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. And they brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. And when all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil, pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. Grab a seat. So here's the question. How can I help you? So, so what is your answer this morning? 
I don't want you to say it out, but what is, I mean, if someone was to genuinely ask that, and I'm not really being genuine, but if someone was to genuinely ask you that this morning, what would you say? How would you respond if you were being completely honest? If someone in this congregation over coffee came to you, and as you were chatting, and they just turned around and said to you, how can I help you? What would you say to them? What would you say to them? Alicia is approached by an unnamed lady. And she's facing two of life's crippling problems, death and debt. And her husband has died, and he was a good man. He, he served God. He, he was part of the company of prophets, she told the prophet, Alicia. He was part of your company. And do you know something else she says? He revered God. My husband had a, had a high regard for God. See the question Sally asked this morning, how, how big is your God or what is your worth? That husband would have been able to say, I have a high value ascribed to God. And so this widow comes to Alicia and says, listen, my, my husband's dead and he was a good man. And, and before we, we kind of say anything else, it almost doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway. Do you know, committed Christians and Christian families are not exempt from pain and suffering and mess. Just because you revere or worship God, just because you serve God, doesn't mean you or your family won't face dark and difficult days. And so many of us know that. So many people sitting here who have served God, worship God, revered God, and yet they're going through the mill at the moment. Just because you're a Christian, just because you are a good part, does not mean you're exempt. And so this unnamed widow is grieving, and, and to make matters worse, the wolves are at the door. Because it, her husband, it would seem, has ran up some debt. And now the creditor is calling to collect it. And he's going to take her two sons into slavery because clearly she doesn't have the money available to pay her creditor off. And so she's about to lose everything. She did, not just what she has materially, but she's now going to lose her two boys. I mean, this is a trap. I hope we don't read these stories and kind of like distance ourselves from them. Like this is a truly tragic, heartbreaking situation. And in response, Alicia asks a compassionate question. He says, how can I help you? How can I help you? When was the last time you asked that of someone who shared their situation with you? I mean, it's one of the best questions you could ask. It's, it's risky. Yes, of course it's risky. It's potentially inconvenient because who knows what the answer might be and who knows where it might lead to? Who knows what it's going to cost you? But anyway, Alicia asks it. And then he follows it up with another question. And the second question's rather interesting. He says, tell me, what do you have in your house? Now, I find that interesting. It's not what do you want. It's what do you have? And again, I don't want to digress too much, but God's a habit of doing that, asking those kind of questions. What, what is that in your hand, Moses? What do you have? What's that in your lunchbox? What have you got and then God has this habit of doing something extraordinary with whatever's made available to him. So 
Elisha asked this woman, what do you have in your house? Well, in a similar vein to, to Moses, he said, I'm just a staff. I don't have much in this lunchbox. In a similar vein, the woman says, I don't have a lot. In fact, she says, and the text actually says, she initially says, I've got nothing. Nothing at all, oh, except small, small jar of olive oil. I mean, this is dire. This is a truly destitute family. There's not a lot of hope here. So what's going to happen? Well, next we've got this really weird chain of events. So Alyssa says to her, I tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go around all your neighbors and ask them for as many empty jars as they can give you. The incredible thing is, they do. You see, whenever people are asked to help, whenever people are made aware of a need, they often respond. And so this woman's neighbors gave her what she asked for, which makes me think, why didn't she ask for cash? But anyway. (laughs) But are you and I the kind of neighbors who help when we're asked? Well, anyway, Behind closed doors, this, this is the way it's meant to work, behind closed doors, so there's only the three of them in the house, there's only the mum and her two boys, Alicia isn't there. So this is a private affair. But the widow is instructed, what I want you to do behind closed doors with just you and your two boys, I want you to start filling all the empty jars that your neighbors give you from that one small jar of olive oil. Now, is it just me? Or would you go, uh, how's that going to work? And why, why is there no reference here of anybody asking that question? Why does nobody query the absurdity of this? They just do as Alicia tells them. And incredibly, you could say miraculously, they run out of empty jars. And when that happens, when they're totally surrounded by only full jars, then the oil in that one little small jar stops flowing. And so the woman runs out of the house. And she finds Alicia, and she tells him what's happened. And Alicia tells her what to do next. And he says, tell you what you do. Sell the oil, pay off your debts, keep your sons, and together you can live off the rest of your earnings for the rest of your life. End of story, end of incident. No comment on it. So what was all that about? Why is that in God's word? Is there not more to say? Are there not more questions to ask about what has just happened? Well, we could talk about the amazing faith and trust of that woman. I mean, she turns to God, or she turns to the man of God, as Elisha is described in verse 7. So she turns to the man of God. She seeks his help. She does what she's told to do without questioning any of it. In other words, she obeys a word from God. And as a result of doing that, her life is transformed forever. It's changed. So her faith and her trust was impressive. And I could stand up here this morning and say, do you know something? We should all learn from that. 
but that's not what I'm going to talk about. I could also pan out, take a step back, and talk about the interesting symbolism that aspects of this story contains and implies, and many have done this. And so, for example, we could say that the oil represents the Holy Spirit, as it often does in Scripture. And therefore, what this incident teaches us is that we need to come before God like empty vessels and be miraculously filled with his Holy Spirit and filled again and again and again because there is a limitless supply. And again, it's a great thought. But I'm not going to talk about that either. Instead, I want to make three Really simple points, because as I often say, I am really simple, okay? So here are three simple points that I take from this. And the first is something I have said. God cares about you. You know, God cares about kings and rulers. He cared about Joram last week and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom. And so he miraculously provided water for them and gave them victory over the king of Moab. God cares about kings and rulers. He cares about what goes on in public life on the world stage in the Amazon rainforest. But he also cares about what goes on behind people's closed doors. Yeah, God sees nations, but God sees you. He knows about Brexit and he knows about what you had for breakfast. And I don't mean to be trivial and trade about that. I just want us to realize that nothing and no one is beyond the scope and reach of God's compassion and care, including unnamed widows who are burdened down with the problems of life. God cares about you this morning. God compassionately cares about you. And the second thing, and it kind of follows on, God is able to do more, exceedingly more, I think is how scripture puts it later on, exceedingly more, abundantly more than we could ask or imagine whenever we ask or imagine, because that's been the common thread in chapter three and chapter four. It's whenever people have turned to God and said, help. It's whenever people turn to God and ask and imagine what might be. Now that doesn't guarantee a miraculous intervention every single time or ever for that matter. But it does remind us that to neglect to turn to God in times of need, as the vast majority of people tend to do, or the tendency to limit God, as most of us are guilty of doing, I know I am, is actually crazy and irresponsible. God is powerful. God is in control at every level of life as these stories reveal and disclose. So why do we not seek his word and seek his help? Just like weak and vulnerable women of faith did, just like powerful, well-known and faithless kings did. God is God, God is almighty, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent, God is sovereign, and we ignore and we dismiss him to our loss. He cares for you, and he is able to do exceedingly more than you can ask or imagine. And then the third thing I want to stress 
is that God helps others through you. God ministers to needy people through his prophet Elisha. Wherever the need, wherever, or whatever the need, and wherever the need. Elisha is God's man. Elisha is God's spokesperson, his conduit at this time, in this place, in people's lives. He is the one who's empowered by the spirit of his ascended master to serve God in his generation, in his context, in his environment. And although I've said it before, I want to keep coming back to the fact that that reality and truth for us still applies. That if you're a Christian here this morning, you are empowered by the spirit of your ascended master and therefore God continues to minister to needy people through you. That's the way it works. It's the way it has always worked. And so are we going to be the kind of people who do ask the question, how can I help you? Because you see, whenever we ask that question, how can I help you? We realize and recognize that ultimately it is God who is helping people through us. God chooses to use us. Are we up for that? And so let's kind of move on a little bit further. And begin looking at the second incident. But I'm going to say so much more about it next week. So here's what verses 8, after verse 8, here's what 8 says to 10. One day, Elisha, so that previous incident just finishes and Elisha moves on. So one day, Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he passed by, he stopped there to eat. You see, Elisha connects and relates to and enjoys spending time with the rich as well as the poor. It's really important to get this. You see, whenever Elisha is in this woman's neighborhood, she has a meal with her and her well-to-do husband. Verse 9, she said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. So here we have Elisha's reputation growing. So far he's been described as a humble servant and a man of the word. Now we find him referred to as a holy man of God. So Elisha's life, his conversation round a dinner table communicated to this rich woman and her husband that Elisha was a godly man. And here's my question, just really quick and passing. What do our lives and our mealtime conversations reveal about us? In verse 10. Let's make a room on the roof and put, it, put in it a bed and a table and a chair and a lamp for him. And then Elisha can stay there whenever he comes to us. So Elisha is gifted with his own penthouse suite. So that he can stay over whenever he calls around and decides it's too late to move on. It's brilliant. The generosity of this couple, this rich couple, the generosity of this rich couple should not be missed. Then we read on, verse 11. I think it's on the screen. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room. It's only a room, but I like the idea of Pentecost. And he lay down there. And he said this to his servant Gehazi, call the Shunammite woman. So he called her. And she stood before him. And Elisha said to her, tell, or Elisha said to Gehazi, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us now what can be done for you? 
can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? And there it is again. There is that question or one like it. Now, what can be done for you? What can be done for you? You see, it would seem that Elisha is a man who is always wanting and willing to help others. And so that, that really is the kind of, if you like, the big takeaway this morning from both of these incidents. Are we going to go out of here and into this week, and are we going to be people of God's word, as we were thinking about last week? And also, are we going to be the kind of people who are prepared to ask this question? Who are you going to ask this question to this week?